What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, March 25th, 2022. The snow is melting out there. As you can see, there's still piles and piles of snow, man. But it's melting. Spring is upon us here. Hopefully, you guys got a chance to tune into the episode that was released today. Had an episode with uh, Brittany Doe. Talked about her book, It's Bigger Than Leadership. Um, real great conversation. Chatting with her. She's still in college and published a book. I think she's... Um, it's like a junior or something in college. So it was a really great book, uh, all about leadership, especially for, for younger folks as well. So definitely tune into that episode if you have not already. Um, other great episodes of the pipeline as well. We're celebrating two years of the show on April 8th. April 8th will mark two years since I released the first batch of episodes of the podcast. Uh, and one of the first batch guests is right here in the room, uh, Vin Vicious, they're right here in the room. We recorded right before this that COVID thing uh, kicked off for the first time. Um, yeah, so it was a great, great conversation. Uh, so let's, let's, kick, let's kick this conversation off, y'all. So um, just got to say, though, last day at Comet today, um, Definitely, definitely sad uh, to leave, but I'm, um, you know, on, on to the next thing. That's uh, the next opportunity is going to be amazing. I had a great time working at Comet. I think they're de facto uh, machine learning experimentation management platform out there. So if you're managing experiments, definitely check out Comet. Um, looking forward to continue to work with them, uh, doing content and, and other, other things. Uh, I'll be moving on to Pachyderm. I'll be developer relations manager over at Pachyderm. So I'm excited for that. Taking another kind of pivot uh, in my career, moving from data science practitioner now into uh, kind of a, a role that I feel like I could really impact the, the industry at a, a much larger scale, um, developer relations at Pachyderm. So I'm pumped for that. Uh, it's going to be a, a great uh, journey. So look forward to starting there. April 4th is the first day there. Uh, but yeah, dude, let's let's get into this. So question I want to kick off with is, is, is about data science and competitiveness. I saw a post on LinkedIn earlier today. I can't remember who it was that posted, but I, I actually liked it and I agreed with the uh, with the perspective he was providing there. He's he's asking, uh, or he's, he's pretty much saying, are data science jobs getting less competitive? Uh, and his argument was, well, were they even competitive to begin with? Because um, it was just ill-defined kind of a job description. A lot of people were applying, people that were not even qualified for it to begin with, and they're just getting expelled. So is it considered a competitive field when you got people who are applying for the jobs that aren't like qualified or whatever? Um, so lots of different ways you could take that, take this conversation, but but let's start, let's start there. Is data science less competitive? Is it becoming less competitive to get into data science? Uh, as always, let's take it off with Vin. Uh, and then we'll go to Russell. If you guys got questions, go ahead and let me know right there in the chat. Feel free to um, type it out on LinkedIn, on YouTube, wherever it is that you are joining from, uh, and I'll get to your questions. Then go for it. I feel like you just handed me a match and some gasoline. That was just... <laughs> is it competitive? I, I'm going to be completely honest. And to preamble before I get mean, I'm going to say that there's different levels of maturity you know, you got your early stage maturity companies who they don't really understand who they're hiring and you can't blame them. You really can't. There's nobody in the organization who understands data science. So how are they supposed to hire a data scientist when they don't know what a data scientist is and they don't know what they're going to be doing with data science. Then you got the ones, and these are the ones I really blame where they've had a data science group for a couple of years 
but they still don't know how to hire. And then finally, you got the really mature companies who some of them have great hiring processes. Some of them, not so much, you know, they just haven't matured their process and they're hiring the same person over and over again. And so when you say, is it competitive, depending upon where you are in that maturity cycle, it's, it's either a lack of kind of an ignorance of what it is that you should be hiring. And that's why you get a ton of people who aren't qualified. And that's it. If your job description doesn't make any sense, what do you expect? Somebody's going to take a look at it and go, that's nobody. No one has 18 years of experience in Kubernetes. It's just, I'm sorry, they don't. It's not possible. So don't ask for it. You know, 10 plus years of data science, there's like eight people who are available with 10 plus years of data science. And, you know, that, that, that's it. Everybody else is either running a business or, you know, Andrew Ng in that sort of a category where you're not hiring that person. Yeah, you know, especially not for 130000 a year. And that's the other part of it. You know, if you offer a salary for that only a junior data scientist straight out of college would take, I don't care what you put in the job description. No one else is going to, no one's showing up, you know, except for people who are going to take that salary. And so companies, you know, when you say, is it competitive? Well, if your company doesn't know what they're hiring for, or if you do something that's backwards as far as a hiring process is concerned, yeah, you're going to get unqualified candidates. If you just use common sense hiring, reach out, network with people, build some sort of network at conferences, do open source contributions. So you build up a community that way. You know, maybe hire someone that could be a community relationship. I've, I've heard of people that do this, like community relations. Harpreet, I don't know if you've heard of these people that, that, that build communities. You can actually like get talent from those communities. You can hire people that you already know that you've already worked with. Why do people do this the hard way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Community uh, builder type of roles are, are an emerging thing in uh, it. it data science because there's more and more tooling now for uh machine learning engineers and data scientists and things like that shout out to susan walsh is in the building i'm in the right time zone that's why yeah i was speaking to kate uh earlier like uh, i think yesterday day before and she mentioned that she's going to be hanging out with you and ben and scott taylor this week we have spent the afternoon together it's been Uh, so much fun i am thoroughly jealous i wish i was there I wish, I wish I was. I'm sure that you will see what we got up to at some point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Susan, uh, so do you want to tell us some, uh, some, anything about what uh, what you guys were up to? Like, what you guys get into? Yeah, so Scott was impressive. He came with a whole kit and we had um, individual interviews. And we also did like a group chat that was videoed as well. So it's going to be really cool just talking about data stuff. So yeah, it should be fun and something special that I can tell you about. Oh, okay. Well, I'm excited to see what's uh, what it is. Uh, speaking of uh, Ben Taylor, he's also in the building right now. Ben, what's going on, man? Um, <laughs> so R- Russell, I think you're frozen, but if you want to chime in here, if you want to talk about is data science more or less competitive than it used to be to break into, that's the topic of the discussion. By the way, if you guys are joining in on Zoom, I see 10 of you guys so far uh, on, sorry, on LinkedIn. Go ahead. Let me know if you guys got uh, any questions and uh, be sure to smash that like there. 
Yeah, thanks, Alfred. So, so uh, I echo Ben's comments uh, entirely. Uh, maturity is a, is a key factor uh, to this, but also I'd um, I'd further that by saying that there's kind of two streams of understanding of, of data science. I think, and this affects both the immature and the mature companies, as far as I can tell from a lot of things I see posted. That you know, you got the the data science, the broad spectrum data science, you know, everyone wants to be a data scientist. And then you have some uh, areas where it's split down into data analysts, data engineer, uh, data scientist, um, a statistical uh, analyst, all of those different specifics that are split out. And if the company is mature and mature enough to know those, then it's probably less competitive because there's more nuance in what the job description is and the people they're going for. Um, that being said, I still think there's a lot of poor um, recruitment campaigns out there, just like Ben said, whether they're, <coughs> excuse me, they're, they're underselling the role um, salary-wise, uh, and they're, um, yeah, they're asking for too much. You know, you might as well be asking for 10 years of experience of being 18 years old for a lot of the, the things they're putting in this. It's just an impossible um, an impossible thing to fulfill. I, I saw a, a role advertised on LinkedIn recently that was looking for a head of data analysis, uh, and it was for about fifty-five to sixty-five thousand per year. I mean, this is sterling, so uh, not quite dollars. And the role level was identified as mid to senior management level. And there's just so many contradictions in that. I, there was people that applied for it though, and I think that's part of the problem. Um, the, the people that are looking for entry-level roles and see those types of things and think, oh, well, you know, that's at a, a, a management level that I could go for and a salary that's maybe good for me at this point in my career, even though the actual requirements are way out of range. And it just leads to a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of this mire of uh, poorly, um, poorly written job descriptions. Uh, and I imagine they'll just get a load of candidates that are, and not what they're looking for, but you know the old, the old, um, uh, the old phrase. You know, you, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Is, is kind of true on that. If you want the right person, firstly define the role properly. Be prepared to to pay market rate for it. If you're not going to pay market rate, you're not going to get what what you want. Russell, thank you so much. Man. I appreciate that. I like that. If you uh, pay peanuts, expect monkeys. That is a great way to uh, to put it. Uh, shout out to Ben Taylor. Navneet Gill is also joining us. Uh, good to see you, Navneet. Thank you so much for, for tuning in. Look, if you guys got questions about uh, anything, please do let me know. Uh, actually, Navneet, we're talking about hiring in data science. Uh, and I think you wrote a post just a uh, couple of days ago, maybe it was yesterday or something, about your process for hiring data scientists. Can you talk to us about that? Is that a question for me? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the, uh, thanks for having me, Harpreet. I appreciate that. Um, I, I don't know, I guess, uh, I don't know if, the, if I have a very clear process, but I think I'm kind of organic by nature. Um, so the post that I had yesterday was about questions that data scientists should ask in interviews. Um, and I don't necessarily ask all those questions, but I do ask some of them in every interview I have, uh, just to get a lay of the land of, you know, the resources they have, the process it has, and the kind of 
role that I'm, you know, interested in and can I leave my stamp on it or not, you know. Um, but the other, I think the other post that you're talking about, how I hire a data scientist, I believe that was a comment that uh, Wynn's post had about how to hire or something along those lines. Um, and in those cases, I, I actually work with a lot of like junior data scientists. Um, and I, I usually go by uh, A, whether they have a STEM background, but I make sure that I walk project with them. So they kind of go over, you know, some of the code, some of their GitHub work and how they've chosen this project, how they've laid this out. Uh, and by the end of that project, I do have a good sense of where, what that person brings and where it needs some work. Uh, I'm, I don't care much about what languages they know because I, you know, those kids are smart these days. They have, their skills are quite transferable. Um, but it's more about, you know, what have they done on a couple of projects and whether some of these skills are teachable in the kind of work that I'm looking for or the project I'm looking for. Awesome. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, so that question is coming in from, uh, from, from LinkedIn, um, one from Robin. Uh, and he's pretty much just asking, you know, Canada looking for analytics opportunities, if remote opportunities. Uh, look, you can get remote opportunities now, like all, from all over, right? There's companies hiring from uh, everywhere now. So definitely just keep an eye out for those. Start looking on LinkedIn. Somebody's asking what's the best source for senior manager roles in data science and ML space. Uh, I will say, even though we're talking about hiring data scientists right now, like we're not like job like finders or what they call recruiters or anything like that. I would say use the search bar. Uh, use LinkedIn search. Use uh, Indeed. I think LinkedIn's search for jobs is pretty, pretty good. Uh, so definitely check that out. Or just scope out companies that uh, you find interesting in a domain that you find interesting and just look them up and go to the careers page. And even if they don't have a job posted, just uh, apply for them anyways. Um, so definitely check that out. Um, all right. I, I like this question. Okay. So I'm going to feel this one to Vin uh, because you kicked off this discussion about uh, getting paid. Somebody saying, all right, well, if I'm two year experienced data analyst in the banking domain, what's a decent amount of annual salary that I should be expecting? Um, this is specifically in Canada. So whatever Vin says, just divide that number by two because Canada pays shit uh, and go for it. You know, I, the way you want to look at any sort of compensation, forget the number of years of experience that you have. What you want to look back on is the impacts that you've had on the businesses you've worked with and whether that's client work, whether that's actual, like being a, an employee within a company, it's the same idea. Market yourself that way and then look at it as your compensation is really a percentage of what it is that you can bring to a business combined with how much that business makes. I mean, if you go for a startup, you're not going to make three, four hundred thousand a year. It's just not realistic because the startup's not profitable yet. So there's no way that a poorly funded startup is going to pay you a ton of cash. If you're looking at a mid-sized business, now you're looking at a different situation. So you could make a significant impact there. 
because they already have revenue. They have enough money to invest in a data science team. So you can kind of hear what I'm going through. Uh, you know, I'm going through a progression of how much money have you made companies in the past? Don't worry about years of experience or capabilities or anything like that. How much do you think you can make this particular company based on what they are, you know, what's their revenue? What are their opportunities to monetize your skills? What kind of projects do they have in mind? I mean, do they even know? Are you going to be that person who shows up and really transforms the team and helps them figure out a direction? You know, and all of that plays into what your compensation is. When you talk about finance, that's a great domain to be in. That's one of the higher end domains. So you're looking at some domains like finance are at the very top. Insurance is one of the ones at the top. Healthcare is up there as well. Then there's ones at the very bottom. So get an idea of each one of those aspects and then get a salary. Forget the averages. Whatever you do, do not look at any average. They're all garbage. Any survey, those are bad too. But think about yourself in terms of value and think about the company in terms of that specific company. What could you do for them? And then go for a compensation package because salary is just one part of your compensation. You can do a flat salary. Talk about bonuses. There's two types of bonuses. You have guaranteed bonuses and you have performance related or performance based bonuses. You can have a significant amount of your salary or excuse me, your total compensation in performance-based bonuses. Companies like that because if you don't perform, they don't have to pay you. If you do perform, everybody's happy. And then also look at stock. If the company has a track record of their stock growing year over year, and be careful right now because tech companies are getting brutalized. So stock is different now than it used to be. You may want to ask for grants versus options. Options are pretty much the universal thing, but if if the price that they're staked at given to you at ends up being underwater, now you're losing money. I mean, you're not literally losing money, but the stock isn't worth anything to you. So you might think about grants. And so those would be everything that I would go through if I was trying to figure out what my compensation was for a job. Right on, Ben. Thank you so much. All right, let's go to Costa. Costa got a question. Uh, this question is coming out on LinkedIn, and these questions are of the variety of, you know, how do I get a job with data science, stuff like that. Uh, we'll definitely circle back up to that. Uh, we've talked about that stuff hundreds of times in, uh, you know, one of the other 200 iterations of this office hour. So please feel free to go to the back catalog of the artist data science happy hour and just dig through that. But if we got time, we'll come back to the Costa, man. What's going on? Dude, Costa, I was... Uh, chatting with your classmate earlier today uh richmond uh richmond, richmond. yeah yeah dude had a great time my uh, chat with him he's a cool guy uh but yeah go, go for it, man yeah he's a cool bloke i think ken ken gino is him as well um yeah i've been interested with as well yeah he's, he's a cool bloke um we studied our masters together and then now he's doing all sorts of stuff writing for nvidia and a few other things like that um yeah. cool bloke um um, yeah, check out his check out his LinkedIn and his Medium article if you guys want. The name's Richard uh, Richmond Alake, uh, A L A K E. So yeah, there's a plug, Richmond. You're welcome. Um, but <laughs> in the meantime, what something that's always on my mind is um, is growth and development, right? Like I'm always trying to develop myself as a machine learning engineer and as a data scientist, right? Um, and I know where I'm focusing in terms of computer vision, but I'm always torn between, oh, I want to go read papers, learn the new stuff, 
uh, learn about the latest, you know, platform stuff, the latest engineering background stuff, the latest, you know, research that's coming out. But then I'm also like, ooh, it's been a while since I've touched, you know, basic linear algebra and, and some of the, you know, Bayesian maths and some of the basics, right? So I, I wanted to hear from people around the room because there's a lot of experience here. How do you guys balance the explore new stuff in studying and in and then keeping up with your field versus exploit the basics and you know how, how do you balance that and maybe a roundtable question is what's everybody reading right now what's your focus on studying do you have a pattern as an established data scientist yeah Jeff, i love this it's a great question uh, if you guys don't mind i'll, I'll think into this first so i spend some time every summer going back to like the basics like a month or two just going back refreshing up on the basics but i do it in the most fun way possible i've got these books that uh, are now damaged because you know the basement flooding uh I lost all of them, but they're the uh, the manga guides and the cartoon guides. So I had like the manga guide to linear algebra, to calculus, to statistics, to regression analysis, uh, about 20 different books like this that are essentially manga slash comic books. Uh, and they're just teaching the basics and it's a, they're a ton of fun to read. Um, so, you know, I'll go through one of those like, you know, in, in a week uh, just by reading a few pages every morning. Uh, so that's kind of how I keep in touch with the basics. Um, like in terms of learning new stuff, I kind of just like, I'm very distractible in the sense that dude, like, like I think everything is so cool and so interesting and I'm just so curious about everything. Um, but I try to just find the one, I, like I will tend to sample a bunch of different things and then find the one that holds my attention the most and then explore that until I'm tired and move on to something else. So recently that's been a lot of, um, I've been going all in on, on Git, like just spending, a sh you know, the last two weeks, it's really trying to get past the, the fundamentals and basics of Git and just start learning a little bit more, like, you know, like all that fancy stuff Nikigo's talking about, like, you know, uh, uh, squashing commits and rebasing and cherry picking and all that stuff. Um, so that's, that's, that's what I was doing for the last two weeks. And now I'm getting into like Docker and Kubernetes just cause I'm going to have to have, uh, uh, the, the more and more I go into this like ML ops space, that's competencies that I'm going to need to have to be able to speak intelligently about, especially like a developer relations position. So uh, that's what I'm uh, mostly been in technical stuff wise. Uh, I always try to mix in some deep learning in there uh, as much as I possibly can. Uh, maybe pick up one one algorithm. Like this week, I was I was uh, doing basic stuff, uh, flushing out my last project for Comet, and it was uh, I was just using some auto encoders. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, exploring different um, activation functions. Uh, so instead of the ReLU activation function, I was learning about the Cellu activation function, uh, which you need to have the Lacoon normalization as the kernel activation function. So that was, that was new stuff I was doing this week. Um, but I'm also reading this sci-fi book, currently not reading, but listening to it. It's called Exhalation, and they're a collection of short stories. And they are almost like... A, black mirror episode because they all have like this weird twist at the end um so it's pretty pretty interesting um let's go to uh let's go to navneet on this and i'd love to hear from uh from greg and vin and ben is in the building but he is on a airplane uh ben have a safe flight i mean that's a good question but i by nature i don't seek new technologies on purpose um, I've been 
in analytics about 15, 20 years now. Um, I My master's is in econometrics. Um, so I, you know, I, I had that background. But for, out of curiosity, I actually, when I started my career, I, to learn new things, I jumped industries. <laughs> so, you know, I'll go from CPG to financial services, to digital, to CPG, to whatever. And by default, I learn new technologies that they use and they apply. So if you are in a company that works in multiple industries, which I highly encourage. So if you're working with a vendor, let's say, and they work across multiple industries, you will be exposed to different technologies, to different models, to different uh, methods of doing things. Um, so my advice would be in the first decade of your career, try to work with consulting services or vendors that work across different industries. And that way, by default, you'll be exposed to a lot of really smart people who are solving issues across industries. Um, that's kind of been my go-to, so I get bored very quickly. I don't stick around at any job more than a couple of years because I'm like, I'm done with this industry. So, but, but you know, that's kind of my, but I also like, you know, I, so if I want to learn, so data science is something that I don't, I don't have data science on my resume. Um, and part, and partly because most of my work tends to be more on the traditional side of stats and econometrics and my, most of my dependent variables are continuous, not binary. Um, so I do tend to stick on that side of things a little bit more, but to learn, like I'll, you know, be an associate faculty at Columbia or any of these schools, they're very happy to have you, but I also learn a lot with these kids. Uh, there are a lot of companies who come in. You can be a part of capstone programs. Um, and you can also sit in some of those professor classes for free if you have a good, you know, connection with them. So I used to do that. Um, with, you know, if you have a good rapport with a professor, they don't mind you sitting in, in their class. So things, those are things that I do. But I I don't like, I'm... I've learned so many languages by myself, but I don't seek and say, I don't know the AWS or this. And yeah. Yeah. Depends on what it is, what, what kind of space and what problems you're solving and things like that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Navi. Uh, let's go to, let's go to Greg. And then also like if we keep going, Vivian, we're going to take a stab at this uh, as well. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear how, how people are doing this, man. So this is, uh, you know, Kosop's uh, question is how are you keeping up? What are you guys studying? What are you learning? How do you reinforce basics, things like that? Uh, go for it. We'll go, we'll go Greg, then Vin, then Makiko, then Vivian, if she is down. Okay, so I know I, I caught the um, intel of uh, telling of the customs question, but you summarize it, Harpreet, if I understand it well. How do you keep up uh, uh, with, with tech? How do you um, maintain the fundamentals so you don't forget them? Um, and, and what else are you working on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, hopefully I caught that. Um, I guess for me, I let many things drive me. And I think Navneet, you did mention that as well. One of the drivers for me uh, is um, my professional work. So wh where, where do I work and what is my role? Um, 
for my role, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work on innovative projects, like things that haven't been launched before. So it helps me do two things, achieve two things. So one, leverage the current tools and systems that are available in my, uh, 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 in my work environment. But two, uh, also source um, certain tools that we may not have that can help us uh, deliver more value. So uh, the first one is a little bit easier because you can come up with different use cases at work and then tinker with these tools, existing tools, and then see if you can, you know, maybe hopefully bring some new insights or uh, spin up some new uh, uh, ideas uh, that help you uh, get some competitive advantage. But oftentimes, um, you know, it's, it's a tool or a process that is outside of your day to day that can help you uh, achieve that. So working with like, you know, uh, just like, you know, those consulting companies with them uh, can help you surface some of these techniques. But even before the tools, what I like to spend time on is really understanding like business. So I've been on that quest to, to better understand business strategy lately. Kind of like why, why do we do things a certain way? Um, and, and, and how do we go about it long-term? How do we execute, uh, uh, long-term, short-term, what kind of tactics do we use? And the tactics is where you will find out, okay, what kind of tools you, you need to use to execute those. Um, so for me to stay ahead of the curve in terms of like what's happening, I connect to a lot of the, I guess, you know, newsletters um i know newsletters can have a lot of noise uh groups like you know think about cb insights for example um when they announce a lot of these uh um new tools or new companies and things like that so i have access to a lot of them uh but i cherry pick what i want to spend my time uh reading based on uh what is aligned with uh how i can be better at work and how i can be better uh personally so uh, in terms of the fundamentals, though, this one is probably my biggest weakness in the sense of out of sight, out of mind. I'll give you a quick example. When I was before, you know, joining Amazon, I was doing a lot of like Power BI. I trained myself. I learned M. I don't like coding in the first place, but I found myself loving building dashboards, but, you know, beefed up my analytics uh, skills and things like that. Moved to Amazon, so now I'm moving where I'm telling people who are good at building dashboards what to do. Therefore, you put me in front, in front of a dashboard right now, I will forget everything and how to do it. So it's like I have to rebuild that muscle if I get back to it. But do I need it now? I don't really need that fundamental. So my quest is to gain more fundamentals, right? So what are the fundamentals of strategy, for example? Uh, what are the fundamentals of data product management? Um, what are the fundamentals of, you know, cross collaboration between teams, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, trying to get, gain more and kind of like deprecate, I guess, the ones that I don't need based on, you know, my goals. And I, and I'm pretty aware of, you know, your goals don't have to be static, right? You can change it, your mind anytime, right? As long as you move towards it as you go. So, uh, it's an interesting thing. It's a dynamic thing. Uh, so it's, uh, something that you have to enjoy in, uh, uh, also enjoy sharing with others too what you learn. That's another growth point too, because once you 
learn and share with others and explain it in your way. That's like proof that you actually have a sound understanding, at least of the concept. Greg, thanks so much. Uh, get, get on the philosophical side of, of stuff there. I think about business and business strategy. What are you using to, to kind of brush up on that? Are there any books, any, like, any particular newsletter or podcast or that you that you tune into? So, yes, um, reading from books to uh, interviewing people, asking for help directly, like doing one-on-ones. Uh, I even use my posts, too. Uh, to get to get insights, right? So um, a lot of times I learn even on the job too, right? So trying to understand what's motivating people. Uh, so there are a lot of like resources out there that that can help you with uh, strategy. And in 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 my mind, I think strategy is one of those that you know you can you can you can you can. There, there are so many things involved in that sense but at the end of the day people run companies right so when it comes to strategy you have to understand what motivates people for the long term and the short term uh and that is something that you can either learn from reading an article but it won't be enough it's one of those you have to be in it you have to test it you have to make mistakes uh, you have to learn from these mistakes until you get better at it. So there's never the perfect resource, in my opinion, to learn strategy. You have to have a, a solid group with you to help you uh, uh, get go through that journey. Greg, thank you so much. Uh, I can recommend a couple of resources when it comes to strategy. First and foremost, again, it's just this class all about strategy for data scientists. Definitely check that out. Second, uh, I interviewed... Fred Pellard, who wrote a book called How to Be Strategic on the podcast. Uh, it's called How to Be Strategic or, or How to Be Strategic for Data Scientists or How to Be Like a Strategic Data Scientist. Fred Pellard, definitely check that book out and that episode out. All right. Uh, so let's go to uh, let's go to Vin. Then I want to hear from um, Kiko and Vivian if she's down. Uh, and then if you guys have questions, uh, go ahead, put them right there in the chat. Uh, get to your questions um, as, as much as possible. I would say for strategy, I'm just going to give a plug. Uh, I don't know if every if everybody's got the same view as I do. If Nivneet is right next to me, but uh, if she works at Columbia. She might have some hookups. There, there might be a couple of smart people at Columbia who uh, who know some things about strategy, maybe one or two. So <laughs> might want to network in with her and see if she can. You said you were working with people at Columbia, right? I do it like on and off. Um, it's been a few years. I haven't done it, but I. You know, the, the capstone program is actually uh, they look for people like us and I learn from them. You don't really make any money. So just it's just a lot of work, but I enjoy just working with kids. They have a lot of companies that come in that you can network with. They have, you know, Uber comes there and NBC and a lot of smart companies come with really good big data problems that kids solve. So you are a big part of it. Um, it usually happens in fall, but I can give you a couple of contacts to look for folks like us. Um, yeah, but I haven't done it in a few years, but, you know. Um, yeah, from a strategy standpoint, Greg, she's, sorry, she, I, I hate this reverse thing. <laughs> she's, she might be able to help you out with a few contacts at least. There's some really smart people at Columbia. Um, as far as what I read and what I do, this is going to sound really strange, but I get the best 
like rabbit hole, uh, deep dive information from Twitter threads on Twitter. You can just stumble across something on a topic that you're interested in. And most of the threads are, uh, you know, questionable quality, but they'll point at resources and those resources are typically top notch. And then it's like I said, it's a rabbit hole. And if you're persistent enough, you can learn almost anything on these threads and then following the people that that person says to follow that they get their information from. And you begin to build just these networks and communities where now my Twitter feed is four or five different topics. And at any given time, somebody can just drop an amazing thread of information or perspective, you know, that I can follow down and it's every topic you could think of, you know, across the entire data science and machine learning field. You can from time to time here, you know, a couple of data scientists decide to go 12 rounds with each other and argue the merits of deep learning versus symbology. That's the recent one. That was fun. It's fun to watch really, really smart people like put the gloves on with each other because there's always something that you learn about both sides. And so it's there's so much to learn that way. And, you know, I hate to I hate to admit it, but I learn a lot from Twitter. Like that sounds kind of like something an ignorant person says, but you can actually learn quite a bit if you curate your feed properly. And if you vet sources and look always for secondary tertiary sources to support whatever it is that you're seeing. And that helps me understand trends because typically what people talk about on Twitter isn't the stale stuff. I mean, you have the, here's how to break into data science. Here's the basics that you have to learn. But on the other side, you have people like Jadea Pearl who are just constantly talking about some of the best, most important aspects of causal machine learning and providing detail. This isn't the stuff that you get, you know, on a YouTube video. This is I'm answering a specific question that somebody asked, and that person is way smarter than I am. So I would never have even known that I needed to ask that question. And now I'm getting some information and some answers about and you know, causal is one of the areas that I want to understand more about from an applied side. And that led me to figuring out that Microsoft is doing a ton of work. I found this two years ago. They're doing just a, a library's worth of work on trying to figure out how to put causal and machine learning together because they're always talked about separately. And so they're trying to figure out how to merge the two fields, which is incredibly interesting. And I would never have found any of this if I hadn't have been following people who find a question, answer it. And so I'm almost like off books right now. I'm doing a lot of research papers. I'm following people, uh, following what they're thinking about, what they're talking about, what they're worried about. Because that's another big thing is no one ever tells you what breaks in machine learning. And 90% of doing good data science is knowing what won't work and what you should never, ever, ever try to do in the first place. And, uh, you know, what will break if you push it too far. And the other thing I just a few months ago started going through some really formalized sources in the AI technology and AI policy space. And I've learned a ton from them. You know, there's um, everything from AI Pulse, uh, the Aspen Institute, Atlantic Council, AI Security Initiative, 
you know, Stanford, HAI, Wilson Center, uh, you know, I've got like 50 of them, so I could go through it forever. But if you start looking for some of the more formalized think tanks and policy centers, it is amazing the amount of information that they publish and they publish it from a different perspective. These are people who, some of them are practitioners, but many of them aren't thinking about how do I implement they're looking two and three years down the road and they're saying, okay, what happens if, what do we do when? And those, I think for me, those have been the things that I've started to follow and started to learn because as far as practitioner, like a practitioner standpoint, I've got most of the information I need. And I think what I've always seen as the most valuable is the types of questions I don't know I should have been asking and the perspectives that in this field, I'm never going to get, you know, because those policy centers and those think tanks, none of those people work with us. We don't have any of those people accessible to us. Yeah, dude, Twitter has been amazing. hundred percent like co-signed that I've been, I've been on Twitter more, I guess, regularly over the last few months. And it's definitely been one of my favorite uh, places to go for information. I primarily go to Twitter for, uh, uh, mostly marketing tips and copywriting tips and like tips on how to write better uh, and things like that. So that's been super helpful for me. Um, also like, you know, he shout out Sahil Bloom is, is pretty dope, but he's got some amazing threads out there. Uh, so definitely check him out. Uh, great, great tips. Vin. um, Mikiko, let's, let's hear from you. And then after, uh, Mikiko, let's actually, let's jump to some of the questions coming in, um, on LinkedIn. Um, if you guys want to, uh, those in the room, if you guys want to quickly visit my LinkedIn profile, look at some of the questions. And if there's one that you think that you guys uh, want to bring up and answer, let me know. Uh, just let me know right there in the chat. Um, Kiko, let's hear from you. Yeah, so I try to do a mix. So basically, like kind of my criteria, criteria for learning stuff is it's got to either make me money or it's got to like help me build future capabilities or it's got to feed my soul. I do not learn for the sake of learning anymore. Like, I don't know if, it, if it's because I passed that big 3-0 mark and life just hit me harder than expected. Vin, don't give me that look. Okay. I'm not 3-0 right now. I passed it. That was a few years ago. Okay. So I'm a little bit older than you think I am. I know you're giving me that yo, you youngin look. Um, yeah. But uh, I would say like for data scientists too, you know, it's rough out there. Like, if you're, especially if you're a junior, cause you don't quite yet have that filter of what is relevant for you as an individual. Um, I think it's better as you get more, frankly, to the senior data scientist route, or even as you get more niche, like for me personally, I, I've actually been taking a book out of Mark Freeman's, a page out of Mark Freeman's book, where essentially I reserve the last three or four hours for, of the day for learning for my soul. So right now I'm focused on, on honestly getting better at communicating via writing um, and also, f- you know, figuring out the, the fashion startup space and kind of incorporating a lot of the techniques into sort of my projects and my shoes. I keep promising I will post photos and I don't. I know. I know. It's I know. Don't worry. It's, it's, it's coming. It's coming. It's going to be awesome. Um, if it's when I'm not doing the feeding the soul work, um, it's either driven by projects at work. Uh, so for example, like we're doing a lot of stuff with CICD, um, and ops and version control. And that's kind of all I'm going to say, 
But that by itself already is like a really, really big space to kind of dive into, especially on the ML ops side. Um, because especially too, what I find is that a lot, like a lot, like you go out there and you think, you know, it's all been written. It's all been explained. It's all been taught. But for example, when I was trying to find like good use cases of give actions in like an enterprise setting, uh, I actually didn't find that much good written material. So sometimes the best material for learning is actually still the documentation, like from the, the package or the source or what have you. Um, with like a few sort of gems of like technical blog posts. So there's that bit where it's like driven immediately by work concerns. And then the stuff that's like the future capabilities, I used to make the mistake of doing like 80, 20, like 80% of all my studying was future capabilities. So things that sounded really hot, computer vision, deep learning, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Um, But what I was finding was that it felt like I was constantly off keel. It didn't feel like I had a really stable source of understanding that I could really pivot off of. So now that mix is a little bit more like 60% kind of foundational tried and true techniques and maybe 40 to 30% more like quote unquote cutting edge stuff. I found that to me is very helpful. And what, what I personally do is, you know, I essentially set goals for the quarter. Here are my top three intents. This is where I want to like, you know, kick ass. This is where I want to like next level. And then I'll try to align sources of learning to that. Um, yeah. And then also just be patient too. Like I kick myself a lot for not learning stuff like get, like I'm still very bad at Git, and it's, it's mind blowing all the things that it can do or even things, for example, like cookie cutter, like it's a tool that's used in a lot of places really took me a lot of time to understand it. Like it's used a lot in web dev frameworks, but I'm not doing web dev. So things like that. Um, and honestly, the best ways to learn are like signing up for hackathons, uh, signing up for like those like boot camps or workshops that are like three or four days. Cause you get condensed learning and then it's good. Um, and also writing articles. Like I legitimately didn't think I could learn by writing articles until I spent 30, 45 minutes rattling off the difference between like a VM, a container and a virtual environment. So once I was able to do that, I was like, oh yeah, I actually learned something from researching this like 10 hour article. Kidding. It was like 30 hours to write it and research. I just say 10 because that's how much I scoped it for, but you know, it's 30 hours. Um, yeah. So that was like a really, really good way to learn. I was, I was shocked that all that documentation actually went through my brain. So, yeah. But yeah, right now for me, it's all about CI, CD, ops, you name it, platform. Writing is thinking. Writing is thinking. That is for sure. Um, yeah. But, and it takes longer than you think it takes to write. Like, I don't know how Vin pumps out so much writing content and it's all so thorough and so good. I'm like, God damn, yours, like a superhuman. Because uh, as somebody who's like a big part of my job is writing, like that's what I do as part of DevRel's and advocacy. Uh, I don't know. I can't pump out articles that quick. Uh, but I haven't been doing it for years. Like, man, uh, Greg, go for it. You're saying something? No, I was going to say, it's like writing. It's like, I, I'm, I'm fairly new to it. Like, at least in the long form. And I'm actually curating things that are already published. And even that takes me like eight hours to go through four articles. 
and then kind of like explain it in a sense, in a way that makes sense to me uh, and also try to empathize with the audience that it makes sense to. So thank you, Harpreet, Ven, and, and, and others who've given me some, some feedback on, on the, on the new blogs that I, that I put out. So it's, uh, it's been fun lately, but it's been, <laughs> thank you, Ven. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And it's kind of like, it's a, uh, it's a super, like, it's a superb way of learning a lot. Like, you know, you learn about the, 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 the history of transformers, uh, how we put, you know, language, uh, uh, uh models to the top, you know, um, you know, how now he's spreading to computer vision, then what next, right? So how, how can you combine two systems together? I mean, it's, uh, it's been very uh, eye-opening, right? So, uh, and I'm hoping that the audience will continue to learn with me too, but uh, I'm really enjoying it, Mikiko. So uh, I, I think you put the hours in, but at the end of the day, it will be very worth it. So, um, yeah, kudos what, to you. I will say that I do find kind of interesting. So, and this might be because I came from like an anthro an anthropology economics background where like history and context and the philosophy of why theories were developed is so important, but it's a little bit weird that like, I feel like sometimes people go straight to learning the tech and the documentation, but I feel like it would. And then, you know, everyone's like, I, I think there was like this good quote where someone was like computer science or programming it, engineering is like the greatest expression of punk because it never matters the history people always just they go in they think it started from right when they enter the field and they never think about that there was this long history before it and i feel like i feel like it's it's so fascinating because like at least in the anthropology world there's even in social anthropology there's such an emphasis on ethnography on like asking questions on like understanding the stories, understanding like, like how things developed. And I feel like a lot of times when people are questioning, well, why does, why was this technology like designed this way? Why do we use it this way? It's like, instead of assuming that like that fence in the middle of a yard was just built for no reason, maybe the better question is there is a reason why this fence was built that way. So maybe we understand what the problem it was trying to solve and how, it, you know, whatever was developed was a response to that. Like with data scientists, for example, and this is the thing that I, I, I found a little bit frustrating as a data scientist, right? So let's take the example of like containers versus VMs, right? Anytime you want to get an explanation about, for example, what a data scientist should use to encapsulate their project cleanly and safely, people always toss you this is the difference between a container and a VM. Well, guess what? Most data scientists aren't choosing between a container and a VM. They're choosing between a virtual environment and a container or they're packaging something. So it's, it's really interesting because the reason why that's written, right, is because it's assuming an engineer in mind. It's assuming an engineering audience, but most data scientists are not engineers. I mean, I'm sure that'll, you know, I'm sure they'll kick off a nice LinkedIn, you know, comment argument, but it's to me, it's so fascinating because I think, the history is so important of why things develop. So when we're like retelling stories, when we're adding our own inputs, you know, like for example, Greg, like with your articles and your blog posts, like I think that's so important because you're bringing like a unique perspective to that. You're helping to kind of explain the story of the why. And it, it's, it's fascinating to me that more people don't do that. I love these, like, I love some of these people who've been in the entering field for like 20, 30 years and they're explaining the history of like, well, 
how do we develop like a server or whatever? You know, it's like, ah, that explains it. That is what sets the stage for all this innovation. No, I was going to say, who remembers when Twitter was coming out? Like they put this like simple video about like how you would just share, you know, you're, you're sharing what you're doing throughout your day. Oh, I'm setting coffee. You know, I'm sitting at home reading a book, uh, hoping that, you know, your neighbor who didn't want to spend time walking uh, and, and, and visit you would just read through your reader, the, their Twitter feed about what you're doing at home. I'm like, man, people are so nosy. Or why do people want to share about so many simple stuff about their lives? And then now Twitter is this thing that, you know, is being used way more than what it was built for. Right. That's one example. Uh, of of what you're saying here, Mikiko, like as Ven was describing how useful it was. So yeah, sorry, sorry, Harvey. Yeah, no, I was just saying the history of ideas is so, so important. Like I think everybody should invest a little bit of time in doing that. Like Costa was talking about random stuff that we've been studying a couple weeks ago. Uh, I was really, really going deep into the history of Silicon Valley and what makes Silicon Valley so unique and just hearing about all the interesting people that help make it what it is fantastic um but there's a couple episodes that you know as data scientist i think that if you're interested in history of ideas you should tune into those uh they're both on the lex Friedman podcast one of them with is with uh, trevor oliphant who's the guy that invented uh numpy and uh scipy and he talks about that that history of that package being developed and he gets such a rich history about how data science has evolved how he took this package called uh, numeric and converted it into Python and how like the history of like, cause he was in early Python days, like Python one days. He's talking about the history of Python and all that. Then the other episode with uh, Peter Wang, who co-founded uh, Anaconda with uh, Trevor Oliphant and talking about the history of why Anaconda is the de facto package manager for data scientists. So, like, like Mickey was talking about, you know, virtual environments, like the package management problem is something that, is really hard to solve and we take it for granted we just install conda but why why is conda the de facto thing and you get the entire history of like uh why why it is that way why it's so important in data science to have this you know, the, the package dependency problem resolved super interesting stuff uh great conversation coast up uh let's let's go uh let's go to you you got your hand up and then also uh there's a question coming on linkedin that uh that i think you'd be uh, really good to answer it's about uh computer vision um um well, I'll read it out after after your comment, and we'll get to Greg's. Yeah, just just kind of rounding out on that. Um, that's a that's a fantastic call out. I mean, one of the things that I almost forget that I do that I do quite regularly is I go back to like uh, people who've been around for a while, like people I've worked with who've been in the industry before. Like, I mean, uh, my previous company I had two guys who'd been in the robotics industry for twenty years each. Uh, as, as postdocs and a third guy who'd been a robotics engineer for like 20 years. So just having them around, uh, I was just like absorbing random bits of information that I didn't really realize I knew until this role where I'm working with more junior uh, machine learning engineers who didn't quite get that same insight into this is why we use version control in this way. This is why we use, you know, single source of truth for, for, this and that right and little little nuggets of wisdom that i just like like was lucky enough to find while talking to some of those more experienced guys right um but one thing that i find that i do quite regularly is i go back to books like any of uncle bob's books or pragmatic programmer or there's this vid there's this youtube channel on youtube that i think is 
thoroughly underrated. It's called continuous delivery. I don't know if you guys have heard heard of that one or come across that one. It it's it's this guy who's kind of been around a while, and he's he literally he literally goes through this whole plethora of ideas like test driven development and just general good software practice. And he goes into this is why it was created. This is the history of why we do things in this way, right? And it was a really good way for me to like um, firm up some of my core engineering software skills, just remind myself, okay, these are the good things we do, not because we do it because we do it, but because it's the there's an actual reason why we got to that stage, right? Um, so those are probably some of the things that I do consistently. But in, in any case, thanks everybody for all these interesting ideas. Um, and Kika, I'm going to try switching to that 40-60 kind of split. So yeah, this is probably the most useful page of notes in my life for this month, for the next couple of months. Okay, well, <laughs> thanks, right on, man. I'm glad I'm glad I contributed to that. So uh, question closed up. I'm going to pass out to you since you're a resident computer vision expert. Uh, it's coming in from Paul uh, Fentress here. He's wondering how to effectively explain your ML projects during an interview with an ML engineer for an ML engineering intern position. This is specifically for a company that focus on, focuses on computer vision. Uh, so assuming it'll cover an image classification project. Uh, fun fact, I was, you know, I was interviewing with Determined AI, and I had to de design a computer vision system, and I've never done that before. I ended up getting the offer anyways, so I must have been able to bullshit my way through an answer somehow. Uh, but but Costa, uh, you know, if, if you're hiring for a intern and, you know, they did a computer vision problem, like what are the kind of questions you'd ask them? What would you expect them to be able to explain? That's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, so in the past, a lot of the time what I've seen with, intern level or grad level engineers who've come through with a computer vision project under their belt, like either a capstone or a thesis project or something they've just done on the side. Um, they consistently jump straight to the, Hey, I, I developed this kind of a model for, uh, for this kind of use case. Right. Um, the biggest thing that I like to see is I actually like to see that they're able to understand what the, what the purpose was. So if they go back to that classic V model of explanation, right? Start super high level. Hey, here's the problem that I had to solve. Um, here's the opportunity in that problem. Here's the technology I used to solve it and then build it back up and then go, okay, why did I use this technology, right? The main things I'd, I'd be curious to know is how well they can articulate the reason they chose a particular network. Um, and to be honest, probably at a undergraduate level or even if it's like your master's but like you're doing a master of data science after coming from a, a different field entirely often the reason you chose a particular line of thinking like say oh i started looking at uh, vaes instead of GANs for this particular task is probably because someone recommended it like uh, like a lecturer at the university or something recommended it right so can they articulate why they're using that particular approach and are they able to compare it to other approaches? Essentially, when you're looking at an intern level though, how much are you actually going to know to be able to articulate that? Asking them that question is why did you choose this versus uh, you know, a GAN or, or something else like that, or a super resolution network or something. Um, why, if they can articulate that, then I know kind of where their skill level's at. 
and their understanding levels at and how much coaching they're going to need. That's the, that's the main thing you look for when you're assessing a project, right? What skill does this person actually have? You're not, that, that's not the thing that says, to me at least, that's not the thing that says this person is hireable slash not hireable, right? That's the thing that says, if I hire this person, this is how much time I'm going to have to spend with them uh, bringing up their basics on software engineering, bringing up their basics on, on machine learning or computer vision, right? Whether I want to hire them or not comes down to the kind of energy that they bring, how much they, they're willing to learn, uh, you know, a lot of the more soft skill kind of components, right? Um, I'm really curious. I mean, I've only done a small one handful or less of interviews uh, on my end, so I'm really curious to see what everybody else thinks. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so what coast up stand is don't jump right into defining your model architecture, put a little bit of thought into the why behind it. How did you come to that conclusion? Uh, how did you come to, you know, choose that specific architecture type of thing? Um, I got random questions for you on computer vision. Uh, coast of, um, uh, let's say like if, if like, first of all, like what constitutes an outlier in a computer vision problem? Are you, are you talking, okay, so if you're talking about anomaly detection, that whole concept gets a bit weird because you want outliers in the data because you're only trying to detect the outlier, right? Um, uh, but I guess what it's, that's, that's quite complicated. It depends on how you're processing your features, right? Um, if you've got... A, a feature chain that's going to focus on the textural information that you've got, then your outliers are, hey, do I have data with different, you know, textual understanding of the, pro uh, of the process? But essentially what I look for is, okay, let's say I'm trying to solve a detection problem and I'm trying to detect, uh, let's say, military vehicles and civilian vehicles as two separate classes, right, on the streets. Essentially what I want to see is a whole balance of data across all the different situations in which I can see them, right? Um, you want to essentially, the, the, I don't see many ways of doing that without simulation. So you're trying to make sure that you're covering things so that you're not seeing weird outliers. Uh, outliers are basically uh, essentially turned into anything that comes up in your data that you wouldn't have seen. It's, it's very, very hard to deal with that because it's such a broad world, especially when you're talking about like, open field, open world kind of computer vision. Like the, like we were, we were solving this EV toll problem where, you know, we had to get a aircraft to kind of land itself and select whether it should land or not. Right. That was part of our control loop feeding back to the actual um, aircraft controller. And one of the tricks, we, one of the things we found was like, there is no way we can conceivably train this thing to detect if there is a cat underneath. You know what I mean? Like at some level, computer vision is not, the solution to that answer. So what we did was we stacked different technologies, right? So you use computer vision to tell you the stuff that you're not dealing necessarily with outliers. You're dealing with the, the facts that you actually care about. Like, is this terrain okay to land on? Is it bushy? Is it rocky? Do you have a lot of, is it water? Is it grass? Is it, you know, what's that terrain type? And then you use totally different technologies to detect, you know, transient things in your field of view. You use like, you know, radar and, and, and all sorts of other things. So I kind of pull that back to first principles is what is an outlier in your situation? In that particular context, the outlier is, oh, it could be a cat walking past a person, an ambulance. I can't conceivably train against every 
possible thing and have a network that could reliably do it. So I need a different way. Um, sometimes computer vision is just not the right answer. Um, but what do you mean by outliers? Like, what do you consider outliers? Uh, you know, we have statistical tests to to say, okay, a particular data point is the outlier using, you know, we have like, let's just say a regression problem type of thing, right? So I'm just curious, like, what's that concept mean in computer vision? Like, you know, like, mm. how would you measure that, that concept of an, of an outlier, right? Like, um, yeah. In that sense, it'd be quite similar, right? Like you'd see like, so let's say you're, you're doing a cat detector, a cat slash dog classifier, right? Your outliers are still going to be statistically those data points that just don't line up from a performance standpoint, right? The, that cat that every network seems to think is a dog, right? Um, essentially, it is the same thing. It doesn't make a yeah. difference what okay. domain you're in. And here's maybe a basic question um, that maybe I could probably research myself, but does it matter the order in which your model architecture encounters the data in, in those batches, uh, like in a given epoch, right? Like, uh, uh, like I don't know. Like, does that... Does that Intuitively, to my mind, it does. Yeah. But I don't know whether I can explain or justify that stance. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. I, intuitively, it does. Like, if you train, uh, you know, the first half of the epoch on, on just the same you know, handful of images, your weights become less randomized, right? Like we always start with randomized weights. Your weights become less randomized as you feed it, as you overfit to a particular subset, right? So it's like taking an overfit network and then retraining on top of that, uh, in my mind. That's the closest that I can rationalize that. Um, yeah. But yeah, we the, the, there's a reason we always just use random shuffles for yeah. images in the data set. Yeah, right on, Thank you, Greg. You had your, uh, ha had your hand up. Um, uh, a while ago, uh, so I want to come back to you there. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I, I mean, um, Kiko has been helping me understand, and Russell too. My question was the what is the difference between a virtual machine and a container? Because I found myself like go like conf yeah. get confused all the time. And then also, you know, what would be like use cases where you know uh, either software engineer or a data scientist would use one versus another? Uh, so that would be super helpful. But Mikiko has already been uh, enlightening me in the in the in the chat. So I don't know, Mikiko, if you want to give us a powwow or um, yeah, yeah. If you wouldn't mind, Mikiko, if you're available, that would be great. Hi. <laughs> hey. Um, man, I really wish this blog post was published by now. Um, yeah, so it, it doesn't need to be. Um, and like, I think this is where it's funny. There's so much data science content out there, but I feel like there's not a lot of quality software engineering translation to data scientists material, if that makes sense. Right. Um, like, and I think this is one of those cases where <clears throat> like, so the most mind blowing <laughs> on Reddit of all places, because sometimes Reddit's it's successful, but sometimes it's got like insight and info. Um, but the, the most mind blowing thing someone ever said to me was, uh, or someone had written, right? Because someone was like, um, when would you use a VM or, or a container in the cloud? And someone was like, idiot, like containers run on VMs in the cloud. That's like how GCP and AWS and Azure div, div, like deliver their services. Um, 
because if you think about it, right, like as customers of like AWS or GCP, like it, well, okay. Okay. I'm not on like the IT, like pure SRE infra side. Right. But if you think about it, so in terms of use cases, um, anytime you want some kind of like layer of abstraction away from the physical computer. So on a computer, you like with a VM, you can determine the underlying OS. Um, and more importantly, you can kind of specify like the resources. Um, now, one benefit to like using cloud for data scientists, right, is that a lot of times as a data scientist, you don't want to really think about what resources you're using to deploy your model, right? Like you don't want to have to set limits on your Docker containers and all that. Um, but hypothetically, you could, <laughs> you could you could have this arrangement where you have like a virtual environment on in a container, <laughs> in a VM. <laughs> on a physical computer and you could have multiples of those and you could even have like a virtual environment and a container on a VM and you could do all sorts of things. It's just really like, it's like onions. It's almost like layers of abstraction. And this is one of those things that makes me really think about how, how there isn't like a, a, a lot of quality explaining like kind of software engineering to data scientists, because a lot of times the information that is presented is a comparison of containers versus virtual machines. But with all data scientists, that's not that that's not the abstraction level that they're necessarily or we are necessarily operating at, right? The difference between a container and a VM is relevant if you're more on the ops DevOps side and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I like publish or deploy a bunch of these models? And even then you still want to make it as easy as possible. So in terms of kind of the use cases, it I feel like I don't feel like there should be a reason why a data scientist would ever need to spin up their own VM, but there's a lot of reasons why they would need to spin up multiple containers. And if they're deploying the containers to like Amazon or uh, GCP, then it's going to be operating off of VM, um, usually configured by like um, our like cloud enablement team or something like that. They'll usually like set the limits. Um, and the main sort of, Selling points are if you have a VM, you can define the OS, you can, you know, you can manage uh, resources a little bit more directly with a container. You, you can't necessarily like determine like the OS um, necessarily, and it's going to be sharing resources like with other containers on the VM. Yeah, this is an example of learning by writing, because honestly, there is no other reason why I would have ever cared about this topic. Except I said I would write it, and then I wrote it, and I was like, "Oh, this is a mistake." But I learned a lot. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm, I'm looking forward to to seeing your post, though. Um, and for a container, for example, uh, the way I understand it too is when you want to guarantee little to no failure, when you know that you know the environment may change. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, kind of like you want to guarantee that you know where you're serving your endpoint. Uh, your 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 ML model won't crash. Maybe uh, I guess my question to that is: Is a container does the container facilitate integration with an application, for example? So a, a container would have an endpoint, and then that you know API would connect to an application uh, easily, can be easily managed, removed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you have, for example, let's say you have an application that calls multiple models, right? Uh, so each model can be uh, served via a container environment. 
and each of those are an API endpoint that is connected to the application. Is that is that a fair understanding of how they would work? Yeah, that's definitely like that's a pretty well established. Um, that that is one of many acceptable patterns out there. Um, and I think something that like this goes back to the whole like sometimes and so I think the general guidelines and and Harpreet definitely correct me um, on this and 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 Mark and other people on the call. I think the general guideline is you want one application per container. Um, containers don't offer as much security as VMs, uh, but it's ideal if you have multiple applications and you want to talk with them. And that was essentially what Kubernetes was meant to solve, right? It was meant to solve this, how do we get these different containers to talk to each other? Um, but yeah, like that's a pretty well-established pattern, I would say, because essentially what most people don't want to have to control is they don't want to have to control scaling up instances mm-hmm. uh, and compute. Um, yeah, and it, it, but it also depends, right? So for example, another pattern is you batch, um, you batch predict like in say Redshift, for mm-hmm. example. And then a company can call up those values because at the end of the day, like a table, you can kind of treat it more like a hash as opposed to having to like cache the values. But there's a lot of these patterns, which um, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand 100% well, which is why I'll be doing two weeks of a front end boot camp for the next two weeks, Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So, yeah, but that's 100% the use case. Um, Thanks, Mark Freeman. Mark Freeman is the building. Mark Freeman go for a man What's good? Uh, I'm not even going to front. I, I, what Mikiko said, a lot of it went over my head. Uh, but I do want to state like a potential use case, because Greg, I know you like finding these use cases and digging in, is uh, a group that, a company that uses Docker and, and Kubernetes very heavily is Netflix. Um, their culture is completely centered around that and i was remember i was talking to, uh, to someone who used to be an engineer at netflix and what they described was essentially is like netflix is just a bunch of little startups masquerading as a large company hence why like they they like uh using using uh microservices so much uh with kubernetes to like bridge all their kind of controlled chaos um together and so uh you know i cannot speak to the technicalities of it so i will defer to mikiko and her amazing blog that's going to be coming out soon but i think you know once you go through that blog and you're like all right i want to connect to the real world um you know from the theory to like you know what's happening in the industry um i think netflix might be a really great use case to to explore a little bit more in thank you hands down the best blogs engineering blogs uh netflix and uber they got the best technical engineering machine learning engineering uh, company blogs. Uh, Van, any uh, any input there uh, uh, to the next questions about uh, containers? Because I see you, uh, you've got a nice container behind you there. You don't anybody, have a container at that. Anybody lost, lost container? Just describe the contents and I'll get a return to you. No, my, like my VM knowledge is so old. I've been able to use, you know, AWS. I've used Kubernetes a bit, but it's almost like it's so easy. You don't really have to understand it until you break something. And then the best thing to do is call someone smarter than you and not try to figure it out unless that's your job. So that that's really like my only input into this is just be really careful. Cause you can, Oh God, <laughs> the mistakes you can make 
And especially when Makiko was talking about security. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can leave some stuff just way exposed on, you know, on, on well, VMs and, and containers. You can leave a lot of stuff exposed. So it's just, I don't know how much a data scientist really needs to understand it. Like from a practitioner standpoint, but it's really good to understand what you can do with it. So you know what to ask, because when you're building models, building it for a particular environment, you don't do a whole lot of that, but it does help, especially when you get into optimization, you can do your ML engineers, a whole lot of solid favors and save days of refactoring. If you just understand the basics. That's like a little bit of, little bit of history. Oh, sorry. Out there. So Mihail Eric, who he runs Confetti AI, um, he wrote a blog post called MLOps Tooling is a Mess, but that's to be expected. Yeah, good point. That's a really great one. I had a chance to meet him, actually, him and um, a few of the other guys at Meetup last week. That one's a really good one because I do think that, like, it's... Ugh, Man, like tooling is a mess. And I do feel like a huge part of it is because there are so many different ways, like there's so many different ways to kind of meet some of the same needs for deploying models. And part of it too is also where companies are at in their maturity. So for example, like, so, so it's funny. So Chip Point, right? One year she wrote an article, here are the top 10 things data scientists should know. She included Kubernetes on there, right? And then a bunch of people like echoed that thing of like, yeah, data scientists should be full stack. Then a year or two years later, she writes, that was my bad. <laughs> data scientists shouldn't have to know Kubernetes. <laughs> and I think part of it is that like when you're at a company that like isn't super mature, like you do have to roll your own stuff, right? Like I do, at the end of the day, you're getting paid to like do a job and that job is to put out like machine learning models. And so sometimes people have to roll their own stuff, but like... <laughs> And I feel like that's honestly what machine learning engineers are. They're data scientists that roll their own stuff. Hopefully successfully. It's, it's like, I think, I think uh, at least a high level understanding is important for data scientists, right? Like the other day I was reading something. Kubernetes, when I hear it, I hear K8s. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing something about K3. So K3s are more of a, like edge devices tools. So if you're a data scientist, you want to deploy on the edge and you want to leverage Kubernetes you have to look at K3 because it will accommodate the size of your model and make sure that your environment doesn't fail, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know all that, but you know, I'm thinking at least high level, you need to understand the difference between the two. So you don't try to use K8 for an edge device, something like that. So, uh, cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, data scientists might not even know Kubernetes, but data engineers, machine learning engineers, that uh, should probably know what Kubernetes yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, but as a history, look, we used to live in a world where every time a business wanted a new application, they had to go and buy a new server. Then this thing called VMware came along, and that enabled us to get more value out of the existing assets, right? Uh, and then after that, there's this thing called a hypervisor, and these are supposed to be newer, more efficient, more lightweight. Uh, but then it became even more efficient lightweight, and there's this thing called containers. Uh, so containers have been around for, for a while. Um, and Docker is kind of the people who have brought it to the masses. Um, so that's, yeah, a good, good history in a nutshell. Uh, 
there's a question coming in. I think I want to pass this question to Jen. I think it's a, it's a good question. Jen or, or Mikiko, actually. Um, uh, any resources to help solve ML case studies and interviews? And I feel like you have like a, a, a video about this, about like case studies for in, in interviews, machine learning uh, case studies in, in an interview. This person, uh, Euro says, or Rosie says that she has difficulties with that part and it always makes her fail in interviews. I guess it, I might be talking about the wrong kind of case study, but what I do, and this is, I mean, I love doing this every once in a while, I'll watch a financial channel and uh, like MSNBC has tech check. Bloomberg has uh, like a tech hour where they'll talk through and you, you'd think it's like, Oh, they're just talking about investments, but they get CEOs on, they get analysts on who will talk about the problems in the industry that need to be solved. They'll talk about products from an analysis standpoint, and you can sort of glean case studies of what companies are trying to do, what problems they're trying to solve, what their customers are looking to them to do, what challenges their customers are having in adopting their solutions. You know, why aren't they buying? Why aren't they getting the kind of penetration into their target market that they want? And you can, from there, kind of walk forward and say, okay, so when I talk about a case study, that's actually what they're talking about is here's a problem customers have. Here's a problem the business has. And you can walk those forward and say, okay, now what would I do with data to help solve? Not obviously not the, you know, the whole thing, but what could I use data for? What could I use a model for? What could I do as a data scientist to help with this problem? And then how would I present that to somebody? You know, am I talking to a product manager? Am I talking to maybe even the CEO? Am I just trying to talk my CTO into this? How would you, how would you do that? And it's, it's a good kind of role-playing scenario-based thing to do before you go into those types of interviews, because you'll be able to, you'll be able to do a pretty good analysis. And at least when you get those random off the wall, Hey, here's a use case you've probably never heard before. You've at least exercised that muscle of hearing, breaking it down into a data problem, coming up with, you know, a real high level feasible solution and then figuring out how to present it. Vin, thank you so much. Uh, Hiko, any uh, input there or, uh, or anybody else? If you guys want to input here, uh, just go ahead and raise your hand. I'll, I'll yeah. See. And I'm actually, yeah, I would also love to hear Mark's response too on, because I know, I think you guys are like interviewing, right? For data scientists and ML people. I, so when I hear a case study, I, they're kind of similar to Vin. Like I think of a business case study, like the kind I would do if I was interviewing for like BCG or McKinsey. Um, now what people will do is like system design interviews. We give you a thing, you know, um, here. So for example, some e-commerce fashion company I interviewed for like two years ago or whatever, one year ago, um, they're like design a computer vision recommender uh, for clothing <laughs> based off of if you're a new customer or if you're a geolocation or, you know, like near a store or you're a returning customer and we got some stuff in your shopping cart. So there it was like, they were to be frank, a lot less interested in the ML algorithm and they were a lot more interested in um, what solutions I would recommend to achieve that goal. Um, 
so that's one kind of style of system design interviews where it's meant to pattern off the engineering ones. Um, and then there's more like of the take home ones. Um, yeah, so actually I would, I would be kind of curious cause I've, I've done both and, and whatnot. I think in terms of like being successful, I feel like it's a combination of you should understand like basic machine learning algorithms. You should understand basic machine learning use cases, and then you should know a little bit of, about the domain of the question being asked. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear Mark's sort of take on it. Cause I know for us, we've struggled on interviewing candidates a little bit. Yeah. So for, for Humu, I would argue that, you know, our focus isn't fully on ML right now. And so we don't really interview for that of anything. Like if you say like, I'm really ML heavy, our concern is more so like, well, would you be happy here? Because recurring sub the infrastructure do like this heavy ML stuff. Um, so that's why it's more so on analytics and more so, um, and not just like like summary stats, but like actually, like, do you know your statistics and, and experimental design kind of stuff? But speaking from my experience where I did interview for ML engineer roles uh, almost two years ago when I was interviewing, other times I was taking interviews just to brush up on my skills. Um, and I've had to do ML models. Um, I'll be completely frank, I suck at hyperparameter tuning. Like I, I just create bad models. <laughs> so how I end up in these interviews and end up to the final round interviews is that I'm really good at um, writing clear code and my thought process and the considerations I would take if I had more time. And so, um, you know, when, when I do do that, and when I think about case study, I think of like a take home exam or, um, a live coding exam, where we're walking, talking through things. And so, uh, you know, I would argue, don't get caught up with trying to create the most perfect model. Um, because you're going to be staying up really late and be miserable um, doing that instead really research kind of like why, um, you know, why would you make certain decisions? You know, why would you split your data X, Y, Z way? Right. Why did you choose this model? Why did you create these certain features? Um, get really close to the whys and like the trade-offs you made of, of doing that. Cause that's going to show your sense of like the type of questions you're going to ask me work with them. Um, because, you know, when you're actually working for the job, you're not going to be solo on many projects. You're going to be working with the team or at least have resources, fingers crossed. <laughs> and so, you know, I would, I, I've been able to get past that case, case study interview, even though I'm not the strongest ML person, simply because I'm, I'm very methodical explaining my thought process and why I chose certain things. And what's happened actually is when I go into the interview, I'd be like, hey, yeah, my model sucked. Like, here's, here's, here's the points where it sucks at. This is where it's like overfitter or underfitter, where it may be. And like, if I had more time, this is what I would do. And that leads to a really fruitful conversation where I go back and forth with the mechanics, and especially if they're more, more senior than me. Um, I actually learn a lot from them and be like, oh, you approach it that way. Oh, I see that now. Um, and those are the kind of things that, um, especially if you're struggling with them, you can leverage that as a, as a kind of a selling point of like, wow, this person's really coachable and great to talk to. And like, yeah, they have some mistakes, but they were able to really recover and, and, and learn fully from them. Great tips, Mark. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate that. Great, great advice, great insight. Uh, so this question for all the consultants in the space, uh, in the room here, because it's a question about starting a consultant. So uh, what would be, what would be the best starting point to start your own consulting business in data science and the machine learning space? I want to build a small team who can help solve business problems. Uh, let's go to, uh, to, to Vin first, because I'm, I think you might have some uh, 
expertise in this area. I might be wrong. But... <laughs> yeah, I've run my own consulting business for 10 years. I would advise you not to get into this space, um, mostly because you'd be competing with me. So don't just don't do it. It's too hard. Um, there's no money in this space. That's why none of us really, you know, there's no reason to come in. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> but it's hard right now. And I've got to be honest about that. It, it really is harder. When I broke in and built my consulting practice, it was kind of one of those things you could stumble your way through and you'd be fine. But now we're at the point where there are so many small consulting companies and then there are like these monster consulting companies that are out there that you have to find some kind of a niche, some kind of advantage, something. I mean, really just something about you, your background, the staff you can pull together, the, you know, maybe you, you can find an underserved niche. It, it, it's something. Connections go a long way too. If you know people who are likely to hire you, that's going to be the best launch pad that you can have. If you already have people who you've worked with, who would love to bring you in and have you staff up a team for them. That's a huge, that's a huge help. But like I said, right now it is really, I've watched, I don't know, five people who have tried it over the last two years and didn't make it. And it's not because they weren't smart people or good data scientists or couldn't find the people that they needed to staff projects. It's that if you don't understand the process of getting a contract, of becoming a vendor, of even figuring out who to talk to, to start the conversation, where to go to find contract opportunities, because it's not like they're broadcast out there. It's if you don't have a network where you can start pounding through the network to get clients, it's really, really tough. But one thing that I've been telling people is about micro engagements. And I've had some success with this and I could see a lot of other people having success where you offer your services for an hour, two hours, three hours at a time. Somebody just goes online, clicks a link on like a Squarespace. Like that's what I got. I had a Squarespace and they book, two hours with you, one hour with you, three hours with you. And it's low risk for them because it doesn't cost as much as booking you for like 160 hours or 40 hours. You can deliver value very quickly. You can almost, it's almost like you're selling yourself, but also solving some of their problems pretty quickly. You can do small projects. You can do evaluation of their current projects, you know, things like code reviews, model reviews, you can help them with ML ops types, problem, types of problems. You can help them scope. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do in two or three hours that would demonstrate value and you can build up a client list. You can also get some referrals this way. You can get some people who will recommend you so that you have you know, some sort of a reputation online and you can do all that while you're working. So it's not something like you have to quit your day job in order to start doing this. That's the one way I've seen that I think you can overcome some of the major problems, but at some point in your very near future, you're going to run into competitors who are just monsters, you know, and it's, it, oh, that's where it gets hard. You know, if you don't, I'm lucky I have 10 years, <laughs> you know, you don't normally, 
if you don't have a 10 year old business and that long of a reputation in an industry, a big player shows up and competes with you for the same client. And you're, I mean, there's just no way you can't compete. So, you know, there's definitely ways to do it, but I've got to say, be really cautious. Don't, you know, don't put yourself in a position where you may lose your life savings or may not be able to pay the bills or something like that, because I've seen a couple of people do that and it's, it's hard. It, it really is. Mark, love to hear from you on this because I know you you kind of ventured off into that same uh, kind of kind of domain. Yeah, so I mean, I think I talked to Ben like probably like six months ago, and the micro engagements are exactly what I'm doing right now. Um, I have my day job, which I love, and, and I'm learning a lot. But also, you know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur at heart, um, and I've tried before, and I was like, you know what? I keep on trying to go too big. Let me do something small. And really, uh, especially last time, I just figured out there's so many gaps I had. I just want to fill that in. And so consulting and these kind of side micro engagements allow me the flexibility to pick and choose which gaps I want to fill in for, for the time being. I might have like certain goals for a quarter. And more importantly, is that, you know, I'm not trying to grow to some massive scalable uh, consulting business because that's just not the business model that just brings me joy. Um, some people are like, yeah, that's why I love like one of my mentors. He does this for uh, like uh, PR consulting for school districts. And like his dream is just growing that scaling that consulting business. Right. That sounds miserable to me. <laughs> and so I won't be doing that. But by doing all these small micro engagements, I'm learning all these different use cases, um, especially when you're more focused on like the strategy side of things and talking through their problems. I'm learning about all these different openings in the market because I love building product. And I want to build a scalable product. So for me, the, doing this consulting on the side is one, it brings me some like extra cash that I can like save and flip into building my own products. But also I'm talking to a bunch of people um, and learning about their pain points and just collecting all the information as it was like user interviews. So when I do want, when I am ready to build a product, I'm like, well, I've worked for like a thousand people over the past three years. I'm just putting a random number out there. Um, and you know, this is the pattern I'm seeing of like a huge pain point that everyone kept on bringing up. And I feel like I already have a thousand potential customers because I've already talked to them and that's their pain point. Um, and so that's the strategy I'm kind of, kind of using. And then like the next question is like, how do I even bring people to bring into micro engagements? Um, this is where LinkedIn comes in. Um, my content is my marketing. I spend a lot of time on it, not because it feels good to have views and, 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 and likes like those things don't matter. <laughs> um, and what, what matters is the connections I make and uh, the reach I'm able to get to find those special connections because all my engagements have been inbound. They come to me in my LinkedIn DMs. Um, but I'm putting in five hours a week minimum creating content. <laughs> so it's not like a free lunch kind of thing. Um, and so uh, by having that LinkedIn content, it can be YouTube, it can be whatever. It does a couple things. It, one it essentially drives the top of my sales funnel. People are aware of me. Um, they see my background. They either DM me or they go to my website. And then from my website, I have that link connected to the square where I can sign up, boom, uh, sign up for, for a service. Um, you know, sometimes I don't even know the person to sign up. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm doing work now. Great. <laughs> um, and we figure it out from there. Um, the other aspect of it, going back to um, me wanting to build product and like, one of the challenges of being a founder when you're trying to get investment is being a first time founder. It's high risk for investors. They're like, 
you don't know what you're doing, which is true. <laughs> and there's no track record. So you have a couple options. You bring in someone who has had a successful exit before, um, which I've done before and that, that worked out pretty well. Or you de-risk yourself um, by building products, maybe at a smaller scale, or having a personal brand that there's a lot of trust built within you, which I'm currently doing uh, through my LinkedIn content is building that personal brand and, and awareness and, and quote unquote thought leadership. So that way, like when they search me up and do their due diligence, they're like, oh my God, who the hell is this Mark guy? Like he just stumbled into our office. Of course we'll give him money. Um, and so that's kind of the thought process of that. And so I, I really love Ben's advice of like starting small and doing these micro engagements and build slowly because then it gives you options. Like I might change my mind the next year and be like, actually product sucks. I want to scale a consulting thing. Um, and because I started slowly and have these building blocks and the foundation, it's easier to jump into that than just like going cold turkey. You know excellent, what's... Excellent blueprint there. Yeah, of course, uh, Navneet, then we go to Mexico. You know, because, because I'm just sort of trying... So my consulting thing is like about six months old. So I'm, you know, it's, I'm still like starting out. But what I've learned or I'm trying to figure out is what my niche is. Um, and I've done a lot of things in 15 years. So when I was starting out, I was like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. But then I'm now I'm like, who's paying me the most and in what niche, you know? Um, and I have some possible whale clients, but they just, it's a really long sales journey to get to them. Um <laughs> Your win is looking at you know you get it, um, but I'm also trying to position myself in a way that how can I not be replaceable easily you know and what is what are those one or two niche that I know that I'm good at, um, so you know in my specialty is digital and marketing analytics. And within marketing analytics, there's a lot, but now I want to focus in on a couple of things. But what I've learned in this process is that there are all these vendors who do these things that scam, basically, basically scam them uh, in these. So when you know what I'm talking about, you know, hey, buy my model, I'll give you this product, it costs you half a million dollars, blah, blah, blah. It's nothing for them. But the problem is they're scammed into this. And three years later, they realize they've spent, uh, you know, $500 million in the shitty product. And there is no consultant to guide them along the way. And I kind of, I'm like trying to figure out what my niche is. The problem is there aren't many people who do that. So they don't know how to do that. So I think the, the part that I'm trying to get to is that I think this first couple of years are really going to, you know, I think I figured out my niche somewhat, but I I do not have a client yet to uh, say, yeah, I got it. You know, so that's kind of the challenge. So, uh, Ben, don't worry, I'm not competing with you. I do very different things. <laughs> Can I do, uh, let's go to, jump in yeah, real yeah. quick about yeah, yeah. that niche thing? Uh, sorry, yeah. Mikiko. Unless you have something about the niche, Mikiko, and I can shut up. No, I was literally going to say I yield my position to Mark. I'll come after. Uh, I was going to say something that I've noticed that Ben does that worked well on me and hence got me through his sales funnel is that he uses his content to educate potential salespeople. He does it really well. 
Um, and so before you even like the first conversation about like, can I potentially work with you? I've already been educated about his process uh, through his content. So like, I would just, I would just encourage you to go to Vin's LinkedIn and just read through all his posts and realize he's playing chess while we're all playing checkers. <laughs> OG in the game. Straight up, man. Vince is just the uh, Kiko, go for it. Yeah, one thing, um, I guess, you know, for people who are considering consulting, um, uh, two things I would offer up out there. Number one, um, my general advice to people is don't jump into anything unless you know you can pay the bills, like the living bills. Uh, so it's really kind of good. And I think honestly, like the, the trap is like, and I think Vin, like you mentioned this, was it discounted consulting? That is like one trap that people can get into where like, if you're working full time and you do projects on the side for startups, um, and you don't charge for and all that because you do have like a living job, you have a job that pays a living wages, um, and all that, or it was a Ben. Yeah, it was Ben. So I think that's one one potential con of like having a full-time job while doing consulting on the side. But at the same time, I feel like that helps ride out some of the disappointments because like I've had, for example, like in the last couple of months, I've had some clients, not for consulting, but for other like paid gigs, like cancel. And I'm like, Whoa, if I was really depending on rent for this, I would be horribly disappointed. Instead. I'm just kind of annoyed. And maybe I'll just mute the next email from them. So, so that is a thing. So I think, you know, like Mark's strategy is awesome. Um, I think the other part too, and this was kind of eye-opening. So this, there's this one guy who is like a YouTuber, blogger, whatever. Um, he, he does some wild stuff. He's constantly the one as a, as an ex Facebook employee and as a millionaire, my wife left me and took the kids and ran and <laughs> I got fired from Facebook and all that. Um, he's got some wild, wild stuff out there. But the thing that was really interesting that was almost worth the 20 hours of watching his stuff of nonsense was when he said a lot of times people assume that you have to be an entrepreneur or you have to be a nine to fiver. And he's like, that's a very binary mentality. And also to like people go through different stages, like in different parts of their life. So for example, when you're young, it might make sense to go very like risky or whatever. If, you know, if you have family, maybe not whatever, but you can always like flip back and forth between being an entrepreneur and being a full-time employee or even being both. Um, your experiences working for a company will help inform the decisions you make for consulting and all the people and problems you solve in consulting can help kind of inform, you know, projects for a company. Um, so that's all thing. That's the only thing I would put out there is that sometimes you don't have to like go full bore and quit your job to go during, do, do your own consulting firm. You can do the consulting, um, while keeping a job, um, you know, and also like always make sure that you're paying your living expenses for sure. Go back to Vin. Yeah. Just real quick on the niche part. And, you know, when you said that you're trying to talk people into understanding that they need something that they pretty much don't understand they need yet. What you want to do is that can really mess you up because you'll take a ton of phone calls and a ton of sales calls. And at the end of the sales call, you'll get a, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. You'll never hear from them again. 
I spent my first year, like 2012, <laughs> that was 2012 for me, was everybody said, yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And never, you know, I got one, no, two clients the entire year and I did a ton of sales calls. And so if you filter out, you'll save so much of your time. Just really filtering people by how bad are they hurting? And the, the people, once you find your niche, you'll realize that people are just coming to you with this horrible pain point that they've seen you solve once before. And it's really just that if you can solve it for one customer, one case study, and you can explain it in such a way that the company goes, Oh yeah, that's this thing. We've had it forever. You mean you actually have a solution for it? You'll find companies that have almost given up because you're, they've never met someone that could solve that problem. So they just gave up and thought it was a problem. They're going to have to just deal with like a cost of doing business almost. And so if you can, if you can find some really just find the people who hurt bad, and they'll be the ones who resonate. Your message will just hit home. And this is what happened with me with my first client was I found somebody who was in a lot of pain. And all of a sudden they said, wait a minute. So you can wait, how would you do that? And you'll hear, I'm serious. It was this moment across the table. Wait, how would you do that? And that's kind of one that clicked for me that I should have been filtering better because I was wasting my time with just a lot of people that would never yeah, they got it, but it didn't hurt enough yet. Right. I'm going to be for those people. Oh, go ahead. I just had a follow-up question for, for Vin on that. Um, but go ahead, Nabi. No, I, go ahead. Sorry, guys. I have to go anyway. So. Okay. I was going to ask Vin, because um, you're saying you're talking about like getting like qualified sales leads. Is How are you filtering out for that? Is it is it through just not taking meetings? Or are you like saying like, actually, if you want a sales call, you're going to, I'm going to charge for this. And that way you only get people who are serious. Like, you know, how are you creating kind of like that? Like you can, you can get a whole bunch of leads again, like through that content. But like, again, a lot of, there's a lot of leads I get that are just like, I want to pay for time to be a student for you. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, that's like a one-off thing. That's not going to be like a lasting engagement. Right. Uh, how do you, how are you like getting those qualified leads to like, you know, figure out that system. That was your secret sauce. Maybe you just tell me how to pay for that. (laughs) (laughs) No, the first thing you do is know who you have to talk to in the business, because a lot of people will talk to like a director, a director can't sign my check. So don't talk to a director. It's so, you know, that's the, that's your first piece is qualified because you're going to get a lot of those people who are at a level where they feel the pain because they're on the ground floor but they aren't someone who can sign the check. And so you can, you will spend an hour convincing that person who will then have no idea how to convince the person that they have to convince who then has to convince another person. And then maybe you get brought in and you aren't involved in any of those conversations. And I didn't realize that for the longest time that you have to have the right person at the right level. So it's whatever group that you're targeting and then whatever level that can sign the check. The second thing I do is I charge a stupid amount of money. I mean, it, it has to be to the point where if you're talking to the right person, they're the only ones who have ever 
paid for anything at that level. You know, if you're, if you're not charging enough, you'll have somebody with the signing authority to bring you in who doesn't really understand the problem very well and who doesn't have to buy in. And that's going to lead to like, you're gone in a month because the person paying for you is paying a lot, but they don't really care. And so you're giving them results, but they don't really care. And so that's another piece of it. So it's at the right level. You have to be charging at the point of the value that you're returning. So it not only makes sense, but it's also going to put you at the level that you need to be at. And you're not going to have a lot of leads. That's another reason why you charge a lot. You provide a ton of value. You don't want because you're one person. How many people can you actually service? How many clients a year can you actually take on? And so that's another reason to charge significantly because again, like I said, it's to the point, it's to the pain. My clients come to me because they are hurting and that's when they're willing to do all of the things that are necessary in order to do this correctly and to make nine figures from data science and machine learning initiatives. Because if you're not going for that, bring someone else in. I mean, that's what Accenture and Deloitte and all those other companies are for. If you want to go, you know, smaller projects, smaller return on investments, do the incremental stuff, the prototypes. This isn't going to be a core capability. I mean, you hear what I'm saying? Like I've gotten this target market and niche to the point where I know exactly who I'm t- I need to talk to, who I'll refer people to almost immediately, how to deflect people that are going to waste my time because every hour I spend on a sales call that doesn't result in a sale, it's an hour I don't get paid. And so it's really just eliminating. And you do that through every mechanism you have available to you. Yeah. And that's the, that's the important piece is when you're starting to talk about getting qualified leads, it's not about finding who, you know, it's not about finding a lead. It's about getting rid of all of the leads that number one, I'm not going to be able to provide enough value to in the first place. I say that to a lot of startups. It's like, I can't, you know, I would love to, but I'm going to rip you off because you're a startup. I can't give you enough ROI. I just, I can't. And so you start eliminating people and you use paid engagements. You know, if you want to talk to me, I'll, I'm more than happy to give you a free half hour where we talk about what I do, but once your half hour is done, that next meeting's paid, you know, here's the link. And you're going to find people who are very serious versus people who are just kind of casually exploring the problem. That's super insightful. Cause I, I, for product, at least it, that makes sense to me. Like you have your users, but then you have your purchaser and mm-hmm. like, that's a whole different sales cycle. Like, and I think an example I like to give is like in health tech, like, you know, your users are physicians but the purchaser is a CFO and he's a completely different person with backgrounds and stuff like that. Yep. But and uh, realize sales cycle too. When you're a small business individual, you can't wait six months. You, you know, and the vendor, the vendor registration process for some of these companies is it's like a month and a half, you know, and don't. So if you're, so, you know, if you're a single person working, you can't spend a month and a half getting registered as a vendor. You have to go with companies that have a fast track program. And most of them do now because they're used to working with individuals, one person consulting shops, five people consulting shops. And so they'll get you registered as a vendor in two or three days. 
and they're used to paying with, you know, net 15, net 30 terms, not net 90. You know, so there's all of these little stupid things that you have to take into account when you filter out who it is that you can take as a client. Because, I mean, everybody wants to take on, you know, the biggest clients on earth, but like trying to get registered as a vendor for Walmart or for BMW, that could be like a three month process. You know, and like I said, they're streamlining it now. It's getting faster. It's getting better now. But these companies are not in a hurry unless you have somebody at the C-suite or, you know, at the EVP level going, no, this person needs to be a vendor next week because they're starting in a month. So I don't care what your process is. <laughs> your process is different today. You know, and you can have that sort of fast track happen. But if you're not talking to somebody at the right level, you can find yourself just, yeah. And like Mikiko says, cover charge. Yep. I, I charge a cover unless you're, uh, unless you're in the VIP line. No cover charge. Sorry. That's a, it's like a masterclass right there. Jim. Thank you so much. Uh, this question kind of, you know, going back on me, because I think I'm going to start venturing into uh, the type of stuff that, that you do with that, you know, chunks of, of time and consulting, but, not necessarily for machine learning solutions or stuff like that. My niche is now like, okay, I, I, I'm not even talking about breaking into data science anymore. Like I'm just not interested in that. I'm not interested in talking about uh, career advice for individual contributors that are under two years on, in the industry. It's not interested in that. Uh, so I've kind of redefined my niche as mostly talking about developer relations with the primary audience who are founders of a series B startup companies that are developing open source or open core products uh, for machine learning tooling, you know, specifically in, in ML ops or ML ops adjacent spaces. Um, so I feel like that's something that I could be amazing at, that nobody's really doing, uh, that I'm the person uh, for that. Uh, what are your thoughts on like defining a niche like that? You know, that's an emerging creator role. And I just want to say to, to Mikiko real quick to hers, I, I figured this out. You have different rates. So if for my normal clients, it's net 15 or net 30, but those are people who have an established payer relationship with me. Those are people who have paid in the past. I'm good with giving them net 30 and they get one rate from me. Net 60 is 150% of net 30. Net 90 is 250% of net 30. And it's amazing how fast they go. Yeah, no, no, no. We can actually do net 30. Yeah, we can do that. And even for large projects, they can put stuff in escrow where you have access to it. And the approval process is way more streamlined. So there's like those tricks and putting your rate into the contract where, you know, here's the rate for this term. Here's the rate for these terms. And, you know, if you're going to make me wait three months, you're going to be paying me over double, which I'm good with. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's usury, but it's, it's a good interest rate. It's, I'm, I'm okay with that. But talking more, Harpreet, about your niche, you're in a creator and a community creator niche. And I know this is the artists of data science, not metaverse, but you're wandering into metaverse territory because the one thing that every investor who has been able to quantify, how do you value a metaverse has always talked about community. That's every single metaverse. 
It's always about the community. It's always about the network effects. It's always, I mean, and so every company right now that's wandering towards, yeah, exactly what Mark's talking about. Everyone that's wandering towards that area for new, for new means of monetization is beginning to look at companies like, uh, you know, any company with Uber, Uber's an example. They got a community and they're monetizing it in the absolutely worst possible way. Like their business model is so busted when you could look at a web 3.0 concept as a centralized community-based concept, you could do so much with that. And so when you talk about where your niche is, if you can talk about that and start saying, you know, you're not just building for today. You're not just building a community. You're not just creating relationships. You are doing something bigger, longer term. And you're going to hit, and this is anyone who's establishing their own category. Anyone who's really going into a space that's blue ocean, you have to connect it to a need that companies understand. You have to connect it to something that they they realize is probably free cash flow in the future, but they have no idea how to get there. And if you're telling them, so this is the first floor of what you're trying to build. And I'm going to come in here and I'm going to build the first floor. And what you're going to be able to build on that, it's up to you, but I'm going to get you in there. You know, and, and don't use my message. I'm just kind of making something up, but you get where I'm going. You see how I'm connecting it to a need that they understand. I'm talking about a technology that's cool and that's interesting and that everyone's from a business standpoint wanting to be attached to, but doesn't really understand what step one is. And that's what I did with data science back in 2012 is I said, okay, so this is step one because there was a three slide presentation. Slide one was big data. Slide two was just empty with a question mark. Slide three was profit. And so I came in and like my strategy was, I am slide two. I'm gonna teach you that. And you can do something very similar. And thank you so much. Uh, Mark, go for it. Yeah, I was gonna say, I posted a link to a video uh, in the chat, uh, the A16Z startup school for uh, Web3 yeah. business models. And that's the video that maybe like jump in and be like, all right, Web3 is at metaverse NFTs. Like once I saw that video, just clip like the business opportunity um, with that. Uh, and so Ben, Ben provided a great strategic <laughs> long-term vision thing. I'm not even going to go into that because like, he, he has that covered. Um, but I'm also thinking like, what can you do today before you set up that long-term vision? And something I've noticed from people who sign up for my kind of like microservices uh, as a as a group that I was not expecting at all are ML ops and data solution sales executives. Um, many times they keep on coming to me in my in my LinkedIn chat and they're like, "Hey, you're a data scientist. Y'all are weird. I have no idea how to sell to you. Can I talk to you?" And I'll be like, "Yeah, of course. Here's my link." And they're the quickest people to pay. They're like, "Oh." Oh, and just, and just clicking it. And my hypothesis is one, they don't know, they don't know who to sell to. They know how to sell, but they don't know like us really well. They, there's too much jargon. It's like data scientists, what does it even mean? Like, I don't even think any of us can define what a data scientist is because it's just so ambiguous, right? But also what, the, what we can provide to help them sell 
easily equates to like large profits. <laughs> so the value we bring is absolutely bonkers. If I can just spend like an hour with you and help you sell 10 times more, I provide you so much value and anything I'm charging way too little, which I realized <laughs> already. Hence why I increased the price. Shout out Ben for pushing me to increase prices. Um, and so um, the reason why I bring this up is that like you're in developer relations and I talked to you before, like developer relations is this content side, but you're also in marketing, but you're also doing sales. And so I feel personally like this is a market that I want to tap into. I just like just haven't been focusing on it. I've been too into NFTs for better or for worse. But if I were to do a course and actually sit down and readjust my strategy, I would build a whole course targeted to salespeople trying to sell ML op solutions. Um, and I, I feel like that would can be leveraged easily into like these larger kind of initiatives. And that's excellent, excellent tips uh, as well. Excellent insight as well. Uh, that, that great, great question from uh, whoever was asked that question because uh, you kicked off one hell of a discussion. Dev, that was who did that. Uh, right on, guys. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for hanging out. Uh, another one of these two-hour happy hours. Uh, it's been a while since we had one of these guys. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, be sure to tune into the podcast if you have not already. And if you're listening and you made it this far and you're enjoying the conversation, don't forget that there's a link in the show notes to uh, support the podcast. So please make sure you support the podcast. Shout out to uh, anyone who's, who's done so so far. Appreciate you guys. Uh, we'll be back next week. And in two weeks, two Fridays from now, uh, will be the two-year uh, party for the Artist of Data Science because you've been around for two years. I don't know what the hell's going to happen, who's going to be here, but it'll be a good event. Uh, it'll just be another happy hour. And that's another one of these normal things. So, of course, it'll be a good event. Uh, you guys take care. Have a good rest of the evening. Uh, be in touch. Remember, you got one life on this planet, one life on this big. Good evening. Good evening.